Good morning. Welcome to the first 11th hour of the week. My name is Jen Adrian, and it is my job to be the 11th hour curator this summer, which has been really fun. I've had the opportunity to listen to a lot of fantastic lectures, and we have a great lineup this week as well, with John Dalton starting us off. If you have any questions about the 11th hour, please find me afterwards. I'll be sticking around for a few minutes. Also, if a few pragmatic things. If there are handouts, I will always put them on the tables by the doors as you're walking in. So today there are two handouts, and they are on either side um, as you're walking in, if you have not gotten them. Also, I can um, run around with them after we get started for people who are coming in late, so you've missed those. But I will always have them there throughout the week. Temperature in this room. Um, the university regulates the temperature. Often when we come in, it's very hot, and then it seems as though it's very cold by the end. So I think that the air conditioning comes on at about uh, 11 o'clock when they expect people to come into this room. So I don't have any control over the temperature, but I think that's what's going on. And now for today's lecture. John, John Dalton is here to talk about 10 ways of thinking about character. John Gardner claimed that characters are the very first reason a reader reads a book. And as I was preparing this introduction, I began to think about all of the famous books whose titles are the characters' names. The names themselves are the first element of characterization, the first reason to draw a reader in. I thought of Flaubert's Madame Bovary, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, Lolita, Herzog, Olive Kitteridge, and those books that don't necessarily outright name a character, but allude to character or characterize in some way. For example, Michael Chabon's The Great Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, Our Man in Havana by Graham Greene, The Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man by James Joyce. And I think all of these famous writers named their entire um, novel the type, the, the name of their character because it is this, this first way of characterizing or thinking about the full body of the work. It is, it is the character. The character is the plot. The character is what matters most. John Dalton is the author of the novel Heaven Lake, which won the Barnes & Noble 2004 Discover Award in Fiction, and the Sue Kaufman Prize from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. His second novel, The Inverted Forest, was published in 2001 and selected as a best book of the year by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the Wall Street Journal Book Lover. John is a graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, and he currently teaches uh, in the MFA program in creative writing at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Please join me in welcoming him now. This button here. Hit it one more time. Testing. Testing, one, two, three. Testing. Do you think that's on? Doesn't sound like it's on. Okay. 
All right, testing one, two. Okay, I think we're gone to something now, right? No? Let's, do you mind using this one? Oh, I can use that microphone just yeah. fine. Okay, that's how you use this one. Sorry about that. That's all right, that's all right. Okay, hi everybody. Uh, well, you just heard the introduction. My name's John Dalton, and I'm ready to get rolling here. Um, so a couple of things. You should all have the handouts. They're at, right at the door when you come in. There's actually two of them. One is an excerpt from a new novel out this year called Station Eleven. I bet some of you have read it. Uh, I know I've read it, and I've been teaching it for the last year, and people, my students, have been loving it. Um, so before I launch into the main lecture, a couple of maybe disclaimers. And uh, the first disclaimer is one I make at the beginning of every semester in every class I teach. Writing is not a hard science. It's not mathematics. It's the practice of an art. And there's always contradictions and exceptions. So everything I say to you today should be preceded by the following line. In general, with a few notable exceptions, blah, 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 blah. That's just the way what we do works. The other thing when it comes to characterization, characterization is really complex. It's tied to every part of the novel, even things you wouldn't expect like setting and theme. But for the sake of this lecture, I'm going to pretend that we can extract character and, and sort of talk about it independently. One of my first and foremost rules about teaching writing is you can't talk about writing in the abstract. You can't talk about it without a model right there in front of you. Whenever uh, somebody does that to me, I tend to get confused and then I fall asleep too. Uh, so I'm going to begin with a model and that model is the opening of Station Eleven. Anybody here read Station Eleven yet? Okay, we got one or two. Oh good, I'm surprised not more people have. It was a big breakout book last year. It's a concept novel, and it's got a really wonderful concept. When I understood what the concept was, I uh, was overcome by envy. It was such a great idea. It's a post-apocalyptic novel. There's lots of those. I'm tired of those. But this novel does something more interesting. It jumps 20 years after a plague has eradicated most of the population of America and the world. All that's left are a series of outposts in the Midwest, small towns. And this group of people have formed a troupe, and they travel from outpost to outpost putting on Shakespeare. Uh, in a, it's like a horse-drawn carriage kind of thing because uh, all technology has been lost and they travel around putting on uh, Hamlet, King Lear, Macbeth, Midsummer Night's Dream. On the side of their caravan they have a sign that says, because survival is insufficient. Um, which is a very nice phrase. You would think that might come from Shakespeare, but it actually comes from Star Trek. <laughs> It's interesting that the opening of this novel mentions nothing about plague or anything like that. It just starts one night in Toronto at the Elgin Theater. I'm going to read, and I know it's uh, a little bit time consuming, but I'm going to cruise through this. But the first five things I want to say, first four or five things, are illustrated in this opening. Follow along as I read if you like. The king stood in a pool of blue light, unmoored. This was Act 4 of King Lear, a winter night at the Elgin Theater in Toronto. Earlier in the evening, three little girls played a clapping game on stage as the audience entered. 
childhood versions of Lear's daughters, and now they'd returned as hallucinations in the mad scene. The king stumbled and reached for them as they flitted here and there in the shadows. His name was Arthur Leander. He was 51 years old. There were flowers in his hair. Dost thou know me? The actor playing Gloucester asked. I remember thine eyes well enough, Arthur said, distracted by the child version of Cordelia. And this was when it happened. There was a change in his face. He stumbled. He reached for a column, but misjudged the distance and struck it hard with the side of his hand. Down from the waist they are centaurs, he said. And not only was this the wrong line, but the delivery was wheezy, his voice barely audible. He cradled his hand to his chest like a broken bird. The actor portraying Edgar was watching him closely. It was still possible at that moment that Arthur was acting. But in the first row of the orchestra section, a man was rising from his seat. He'd been training to be a paramedic. The man's girlfriend tugged at his sleeve and hissed, Jeevan, what are you doing? And Jeevan himself wasn't sure at first. The rose behind him murmuring for him to sit. The usher was moving toward him. Snow began to fall over the stage. The wren goes toot, Arthur whispered. And Jeevan, who knew the play very well, realized the actor had skipped back 12 lines. The wren, sir, the usher said, would you please? But Arthur Leander was running out of time. He swayed, his eyes unfocused, and it was obvious to Jeevan that he wasn't Lear anymore. Jeevan pushed the usher aside and made a dash for the steps leading up to the stage. But a second usher was jogging down the aisle, which forced Jeevan to throw himself at the stage without benefit of the stairs. It was higher than he'd thought, and he had to kick the first usher, who'd grasp hold of his sleeve. The snow was plastic, Jeevan noted peripherally, little bits of translucent plastic clinging to his jacket and brushing against his skin. Edgar and Gloucester were distracted by the commotion, neither of them looking at Arthur, who was leaning on a plywood column, staring vacantly. There were shouts from backstage, two shadows approaching quickly, but Jeevan had reached Arthur by now, and he caught the actor as he lost consciousness, eased him gently to the floor. The snow was falling fast around them, shimmering in blue-white light. Arthur wasn't breathing. The two shadows, security men, had stopped a few paces away, presumably catching on by now that Jeevan wasn't a deranged fan. The audience was a clamor of voices, flashes from cell phones, cameras, indistinct exclamations in the dark. Jesus Christ, Edgar said. Oh, Jesus. He dropped the British accent he'd been using earlier and now sounded as if he were from Alabama, which in fact he was. Gloucester had pulled away from the gauze, had pulled away the gauze bandage that had covered half his face. By this point in the play, his character's eyes had been put out and seemed frozen in place, his mouth opening and closing like a fish. Arthur's heart wasn't beating. Jeevan began CPR. Someone shouted an order, and the curtain dropped, a whoosh of fabric and shadow that removed the audience from the equation and reduced the brilliance of the stage by half. The plastic snow was still falling. The security men had receded. The lights changed. The blues and whites of the snowstorm replaced by a fluorescent glare that seemed yellow by comparison. Jeevan worked silently in the margarine light. Glancing sometimes at Arthur's face, please, he thought, please. Arthur's eyes were closed. There was movement in the curtain, someone batting at the fabric and fumbling for an opening from the other side. And then an older man in a gray suit was kneeling on the other side of Arthur's chest. 
I'm a cardiologist, he said, Walter Jacoby. His eyes were magnified by his glasses. His hair had gone wispy on top of his head. Jeevan Chaudhuri, Jeevan said. He wasn't sure how long he'd been here. People were moving around him, but everyone seemed distant and indistinct except Arthur and now this other man who joined them. It was like being in the eye of a storm, Jeevan thought. He and Walter and Arthur were together in the calm. Walter touched the actor's forehead once, gently, like a parent soothing a fevered child. They've called an ambulance, Walter said. The fallen curtain lent an unexpected intimacy to the stage. Jeevan was thinking of the time he'd interviewed Arthur in Los Angeles years ago now, before, during his brief career as an entertainment journalist. He was thinking of his girlfriend, Laura, wondering if she was waiting in her front row seat or if she might have gone out to the lobby. He was thinking, please start breathing again, please. He was thinking about the way the dropped curtain closed off the fourth wall and turned the stage into a room, albeit a room with a cavernous space instead of ceiling, fathoms of catwalks and lights between which a soul might slip undetected. That's ridiculous, thought Jeevan. Jeevan told himself, don't be stupid. But now there was a prickling at the back of his neck a sense of being watched from above. Do you want me to take a turn, Walter asked. Jeevan understood that the cardiologist felt useless, so he nodded and raised his hands from Arthur's chest, and Walter picked up the rhythm. All right, thank you. I hope, uh, hope you like listening to that. I certainly like discovering it when I first read it. Let's take a look at the handout now. The first thing I want to say and this is sort of characterization 101, the age-old maxim that characters must want or desire something is true. Desire drives your characters and drives the story. This was a particular problem for uh, the young John Dalton as a writer. Um, When I was here at the workshop, I was uh, in my mid to late 20s, and I didn't know what I wanted. I was indecisive, and I was unsure. And I wrote a lot of characters that were observers, and uh, they stood on the periphery and watched, and they were also unsure. And while my heart and soul was in those characters, they didn't become very vivid on the page. They weren't successful characters. So one of the ideas, I think, the first simple one I want to instill is that your characters should want something or they should desperately want to avoid something. There should be a strong desire on their part. Now, there are really interesting exceptions to this. I'm not going to go into them. But in general, in general, with a few notable exceptions, your characters should be men and women of action. They shouldn't be sitting around in a dusty old apartment, afraid to go outside and interact with the world. They should be doers, and they should get out there and make things happen. Look at number two. There are four ways to make a character vivid in scene, and I think some of those ways are better than others. They're all necessary. But the first and best way to make a character vivid in the reader's mind is for the character to reveal himself or herself through action and scene. When Jeevan, Jeevan who is there to watch King Lear, he notices, he has that great sense of intuition that Arthur Leander is in trouble. He's having a stroke or perhaps an art, a heart attack. And he doesn't, the, John, the young John Dalton of 25 would have sat in that audience and gone, oh, I don't know what's going on. I, maybe I should do something. No, no, I'll make a scene back and forth, you know, that kind of indecision. But Jeevan is a man of action and he climbs out of his seat, even though it embarrasses his girlfriend. And he goes to the stage and climbs up on stage and does something. He takes action. He defines himself by taking action. 
That's one of the very best ways and perhaps the best way to make your character real on the page. The second best way is through dialogue. We all love dialogue, and when we're reading novels and we get to dialogue, especially dialogue that is charming, witty, revealing, um, we like that as readers because it's so effective in particularizing a character. The third best way is through background incident. In the section from Station Eleven, I wrote there's a little there's a, a mention of the fact that Jeevan used to be an entertainment reporter in uh, Los Angeles, and he had once interviewed the actor Arthur Leander. That gives us a little bit of backstory there. Later in the novel, you're going to get more of that scene when that happens. But another way to bring your character to life is through background incident. Uh, you know, taking the reader back and showing them sort of one character-defining moment uh, that happened to them in their past. The least effective way is through general description. I'm not at all forbidding you to use this. In fact, I'm encouraging you to do it, but just realize that it can't carry the day. When you write a sentence like, Ethel was sassy, opinionated, and often bitter, that's good. I like reading smart explanation or summation like that. But if you only relied on that thing to bring a character to life, it, wouldn't, it just wouldn't work. Um, you have to have the mixture of things. And in this mix, the most potent is action, then dialogue, background incident, and then general description. All right, are you buying it so far? Yeah. Okay, all right, good. Now we move on to something more complicated. Number three, good novels provide at least one moment early on that allows the reader into the inner life of the main character. And what I mean by this is that the writer finds the right event and the right language to pry beneath the outward appearance of character and render a moment of insight, compassion, identification. The reader is struck or otherwise moved by this moment of quiet recognition. So begins a connection between reader and character that will last throughout the novel. This is so important and um, you know I work with lots of emerging writers um, and there are many of them who can never figure out a way to write from the inside of the character. They never can create that moment of identification and it's so important because without it the characters just remain constructions, even clever constructions, but still constructions. So let me give you an example of that. The, the next to last paragraph I read did it beautifully. And when I was uh, reading this opening chapter, I think I picked the bookstore, I picked it up in Barnes and Noble, and I got to this section, I go, I thought, wow, not only does this writer start with a really gripping, compelling, intrinsically interesting incident, but right on the third page, she's connecting me to Jeevan. Here it is. The falling curtain lent an unexpected intimacy to the stage. Jeevan was thinking of the time he'd interview Arthur, Lee, Arthur in Los Angeles years ago during his brief career as an entertainment journalist. He was thinking of his girlfriend, Laura, wondering if she was waiting in her front row seat or if she might have gone out to the lobby. He was thinking, please start breathing, please. He was thinking about the way the dropped curtain closed off the fourth wall and turned the stage into a room, albeit a room 
with the cavernous space instead of a ceiling, fathoms of catwalks and lights between which a soul might slip undetected. That's ridiculous, thought Jeevan. Uh, that's, re- that's a ridiculous thought, Jeevan told himself. Don't be stupid. But now there was a prickling at the back of his neck, a sense of being watched from above. It's in that moment that Emily St. John Mandel does the really difficult thing, which is getting inside Jeevan a series. He thought this, he thought this, he thought this. And then this wonderful thing of, I wonder if his soul is slipping up there. That's ridiculous. And yet he felt something at the back of his neck. That brings us and centers us inside Jeevan. And it's so crucial to the enterprise of what novels do to have us centered in a character, to have us form a connection with him. And one of maybe the uh, truths I'm uh, reluctant to admit is that a lot of novels, the novelist never figures out how to do that. Uh, You know, and we're talking about these emerging writers who are writing their first and second novel. They can't figure out how to do that. What's great about Station Eleven is it's a multi-character novel. Um, One of the main characters is one of those little girls dancing on the stage. She grows up, and the novel sort of follows her around. What's great about Emily St. John Mandel is every character, she finds a way to do that. She finds a way to make some sort of intimate connection with all all of the characters. Intimacy. This intimate connection is so important to what uh, novelists and and story writers try to do. All right, number four. Novels really heat up and characters vividly come to life when the writer chooses the perfect event matched to the perfect character. The perfect event matched to the perfect character. This is my notion of what sort of plot is. Like you, my notion of plot has changed over time. As a teenager, it was Twilight Zone and O. Henry. All my stories had trick endings. Not just trick, double twist, twisty, tricky endings. And then I realized that wasn't so great. Then I uh, started constructing much more complicated, elaborate things that uh, those weren't very interesting either. Now I realized that character and plot go together by the perfect event matched to the perfect character. To illustrate this, I'm going to tell you two stories. Um, And this is from a historical happening. A guy named Lawrence Beasley. Um, And the first story I'm going to tell you uh, took place in 1958. London on a movie soundstage. It was the first filming of the movie version of Titanic. It was a black and white film called A Night to Remember, um, which is a pretty good movie too. And um, the director of the film and the producers had already casted all the main actors, but they needed to hire a bunch of extras, and those extras had to climb onto the set of the Titanic and let the, and go down when the Titanic went. It wasn't nearly as elaborate a set as the, uh, the, the more recent version of the Titanic, but it was still pretty cool. It was a big budget movie. They needed several hundred extras. They were interviewing uh, extras, choosing people. They wanted a range of passengers. Among the people auditioning for the Titanic was a very insistent old man, and he kind of got on everybody's nerves. When the director talked to him, he said, all right, we'll consider you. Show us your actor scar- screen actor skilled card and uh, you know, move on. He didn't have a screen actor skilled card. Even in 1958, to be an extra, you had to be part of the actor's union. And uh, the producers and the director said, look, sorry, you know, this, is, this is simple. If you don't have a screen actor skilled card, you, there's just no way. We're not going to hire you as an extra. And the old man... T- 
took offense to this and was grumbly about it, and they shoot him off, and they went on with their casting. Three weeks later, it was finally time to film the scene where the Titanic goes down. They had water hose, big hoses pouring onto the set. Uh, there was people standing on the railing. The director is sizing up the shot, and he looks through, and there's that old man, that annoying old man who, uh, who kept uh, talking to them and who didn't have a Screen Actors Guild card. So um, the director called security and uh, had them go up there and physically remove this old man, drag him off the stage, throw him out the door, and make sure that he didn't come back. That's a somewhat interesting story. But to understand the perfect character matched to the perfect event, you have to understand that in 1912, a very young Lawrence Beasley, the same man, was a passenger on the Titanic. And, uh, you know, a couple of days out, they were sailing across, hit an iceberg. The ship was going down. They were loading people into uh, lifeboats. And um, Lawrence Beasley was assigned to help load women and children into the lifeboats. And he was very busy doing that. And, uh, and uh, some of the accounts, I think, ring true. Everybody else, they were going about it in a pretty methodical way. There was a band playing on uh, the deck, the band knowing that they were going to die soon, but playing to keep everybody calm. And Lawrence Beasley was loading people into the lifeboats one at a time. He noticed that uh, they had finished loading lifeboat number 27, and he looked around. No women over here, no children over there. Double-checked, according to him, looked around, no more women and children. There was a little bit of space left on the lifeboat, and he did something that we can all understand. He, um, he took a jump and landed in the lifeboat and uh, bobbed around in the icy Atlantic for a couple of days and was fished out, and he survived. He survived the Titanic, which is a great thing, until he got back to England, and he was one of the few male non-children passengers to have survived the Titanic. And wherever he went, he wasn't celebrated. He was, when he walked into a room, people were like, that's the guy who should have gone down with the Titanic. You know, that's the guy, the coward. And um, there was even nasty rumors that he had dressed up in women's clothing and uh, in order to jump. Now, that probably was not true. Beasley later wrote a memoir about his experience uh, and was very, always happy to talk about it and stuff to try and clear himself from it. But then he did something fascinating. Years later, 40 plus years later, the same Lawrence Beasley sneaks onto the set of A Night to Remember, climbs up on the railing, and tries to go down with the Titanic. That I find personally fascinating. And I found those two things, once we understand his particular background, and we place him on that, the set of that movie, that's what we call the perfect event match to the perfect character. As a novelist, I'm always trying to sort of come up with those kind of things, to try and create those things. It's not easy. That is such a beautiful example that uh, I, you know, I wish I could come up with that. You know, Reality came up with that one for me, but... Uh, but I'm always trying to think of, of ways to do that, and that's, that's a way that I think of creating vivid character, too. Number five, here is a tricky question. How is, how is important is it that my main character be a decent and mostly likable person? This is especially true for novels. Is it important that my main character be a decent and mostly likable person? I have two answers for you. The first is an emphatic yes because the majority of readers can't commit to the long-haul experience of reading a novel unless they feel a positive connection to the main character. 
Doesn't mean the main character has to be a saint, but if it's a, a detective, then maybe he drinks too much or has problems with family life, but he's 100% committed to sticking up for the victim of the crime. He's a decent guy. Not perfect, but decent. Or the matriarch of a large immigrant family. She's a pain in the butt, she's bossy and stubborn, but she'll do whatever it takes to make sure that her grandchildren succeed in this world. That's her driving momentum, and that makes her a decent person. The truth of the matter is, most people who read novels, the vast majority, feel like they have to have a a positive connection to the character. Not just what I talked about with Jeeva and Chandri, but they have to like them and find them admirable. And that's true. Um, There's sort of no getting around that. So that is one answer to the question. Now let me give you a second answer, an emphatic no. There are still lots of readers out there who are eager to encounter main characters that are not commonly represented in fiction, but that exist in the world. They want to understand the old woman from New England who has an icy personality and who has spent most of her life pushing away her kind-hearted husband and vulnerable son. Or they want to understand the cruel commander of a prisoner of war camp who, after the war, tricks himself into believing he's a good person. There are novels built around truly awful people. And and while maybe in my early days of reading I might not have uh, stayed with those novels, I now really like and appreciate those kind of novels. So there are ways to do this. um, And there are readers for novels like that. So I know I'm giving you two absolutely opposite uh, answers to this question. That's the nature of art. Uh, I think what you have to do is just you follow what your passion lies in. If, you, if your passion is writing about a truly despicable person or a person who's mostly despicable but has some redeeming qualities, go for it. I mean, that's your, that's your only chance of generating some real heat in a novel or story. If it's important to you as a reader and a writer that your character be a basically de- decent person, then write that way. Um, now I'm going to give you one final idea that comes from Gustave Flaubert, the writer of Madame Bovary. Um, I read Mo- Madame Bovary. I came to it kind of late. I think I read it in my early 30s, and I was blown away by it. And I became, uh, I really wanted to know everything about Flaubert. I became very interested in him. Um, and when I read his biography, it quickly dawned on me what an unpleasant person he was. And uh, not only that, but I, that Flaubert would have hated me personally. Uh, Flaubert was the son of a rich surgeon who, who kept Flaubert, paid off Flaubert's bills while he spent seven years writing Madame Bovary. And Flaubert adopted this haughty attitude. He hated the middle class and the working class. I come from the middle working class. He hated them. The strivers, he called them. He hated them. And he would, he would uh, if you went over to visit Flaubert, he would uh, maybe start drinking wine and he would start talking about the goddamn middle class and he would just rant and rave and uh, everybody should stay in their place and that kind of thing. But, and so when he wrote Madame Bovary, what it was, it began as a mean-spirited rant against people like Madame Bovary. All Madame Bovary's got going for her is that she happens to be exceptionally pretty, but she's not cultured or particularly smart. She's just trying to strive. She wants to move from the, the middle class, the bourgeois, up into the upper class. And uh, she does it by trying to marry a doctor, then having a series of affairs. 
all the other characters, the town, pharmacist, everybody, they're all awful kind of terrible people. Um, and that's why, by the way, there's been so many successful movie adaptions of other novels of that time, but Madame Bovary is a very hard movie to make because there's not anybody really likable in it. The interesting thing, though, what happened to Flaubert during those seven years he was writing Madame Bovary, what started as him despising the character, he began to associate himself with him. He began to empathize with her. And so when you read Madame Bovary, yeah, she does terrible things, but she's imbued with many of Flaubert's own fierce longings, the need to live in a dream, the unwillingness to accept real life, a wish to escape to distant exotic lands, a melancholy longing for the unattainable. So what happens is this weird and satisfying mixture of a, a narrative voice that is is putting this woman down and putting down the middle class and at the same time empathizing with it, identifying with it. This mixture of sort of love and hate. And that's an odd mixture, but it winds up make, be, making a complex character. That's something to keep in mind in the creation of your own characters. I'll tell a quick little story about a deplorable real-life character um, that I'm interested in. I don't know what I'm going to do with her yet, but all right, just a few months ago, I'm from St. Louis. We had the St. Louis Marathon, and I'm not a runner. I think it was a 25 or 35K run, and it's not a major uh, marathon, but people come from around the country to participate in it. You know, it's not the Boston Marathon, but it's still a big deal for St. Louis, and uh, on the evening news, it's televised. It's the lead-off story, so at the end of May, uh, you know, Channel 5 Eyewitness News was there when the, the uh, male, the first male runner crossed the finish line. He was thrilled to have won the prize. Uh, they took him up on stage, gave him a check for $10,000, uh, a ribbon and a trophy, and uh, the, he got to dance with the band and stuff like that. And um, and then a couple of minutes later, the first female finisher. And I remember watching the news, and I said I'd never seen a less enthusiastic winner of a marathon. If I could uh, mimic the way she, she won this race, it was something like this. <laughs> she seemed stunned to have won and apologetic and embarrassed. And when they grabbed her and ushered her up on stage, she... Um, she was reluctant to go. Uh, she, was not, she wasn't reveling in the glory. Um, and I guess other people noticed the oddity of her behavior because after she got the check and left, uh, the people who had organized the race went through the video. They had cameras uh, stationed all along the run. They could find no sign of this woman in stage one, two, three of the race. They only, the camera only picked her up in stage four of the race. She had registered, she had the number, she had paid her entrance fee, but they quickly realized what she had done was gone to a section of stage four, stood behind a tree, waited, and then come running in and won the race. Now, this is a very irksome, annoying behavior, but especially to us Midwesters, Midwesterners who believe in like an honest effort and rewarding. And St. Louis was just, everybody in St. Louis was pissed off. I mean, you went to the Quickie Mart and you could engage somebody about how much they hated this woman. And not only did they hate this woman, but the, the other woman who was a WashU graduate student who came in second, but should have been first, 
everybody felt that she had been denied the winning because, you know, she had worked hard and trained for this marathon. And instead of getting $10,000, she had gotten $750. So what they did, St. Louis did something cool. The Cardinals were playing. The next day, they had the WashU student appear right before the game. She got out on, on home plate and she ran around the bases. When she got to home plate, all 65,000 people in the stadium stood up and cheered and gave her the welcome that she should have. And that felt good, but we were still pissed off about that one. <laughs> and, then we, and then a good investigative reporter found out that they tracked her name and found out that she had done the same thing at like four or five other, um, four or five other marathons. What was interesting though, she didn't win. She had come in second and third place at four or five other marathons, medium range level, not Boston Marathon, but you know, high to medium range things. So what she, her gig was she would fly to a city, register, stand behind a tree, wait until uh, it was coming in, and she would try and pace itself that she, she would come in second or third. But on that day at May in St. Louis, she screwed up. And she accidentally came in first. She didn't want to do that because it was way too much attention. She wanted the $750 prize, not the $10,000 and the camera and all of that. Anyway, I find that behavior both de delightfully deplorable and fascinating. So using the Flaubert model, I would write about her. I would write about this woman going to, and with my sense of outrage and mis Midwestern righteousness, my offense, and then I would start identifying with her, and I would start seeing uh, things that we had in common. Um, and the mixture of that, you know, my disdain for her and then my empathy for her would hopefully create something interesting. Number six, memorable characters are made believable by their contradictions. This comes from a Joyce Carol Oates story about a 13-year-old girl. A 13-year-old girl at their most shallow stage of life, when it's all clothing and friends and all that. Those have, certainly have to be the least complex characters, creations you know, in the world. Or are they? Let's read. She wore a pullover jersey blouse that looked one way when she was at home and another way when she was away from home. Everything about her had two sides to it, one for home and one for anywhere that was not home. Her walk, which could be childlike and bobbing or languid enough to make you think she was hearing music in her head. Her mouth, which was pale and smirking most of the time, but bright and pink on those evenings out. Her laugh, which was cynical and drawling at home. Ha ha, very funny, but high-pitched and nervous anywhere else, like the jingling of charms on a bracelet. That's lovely, isn't it? This little passage from oh, it's one of, from Oates' famous story, Where Are You Going, Where Have You Been? But it's just a reminder that Everybody has two sides, or three, or four, or five. There's, a, sap, there's a, a line from a Japanese poet who said, every time we walk into a room, we are a different person. And good writers are always aware of this, just how different we are. We're different people when we come to a writing festival than when we're um, you know, out with our buddies, or at home with our grandmother, or things. So we're, we have all these different sides to us. Number seven, here's another one of my uh, divided answers. Should you base a main character on yourself? Two answers, don't use yourself as a main character. This was particularly good advice for me. When I was a student here, a writer, a visiting writer said, don't use yourself as a main character. 
And for me, it was because um, I tended to be an observer, a ruminator, than a man of action. I was always sort of on the periphery listening in. I, I, I'm the youngest of seven children, and that was my role growing up. I have five older sisters, and I spent a lot of my childhood uh, doing one of two things, listening to my sisters talk or running errands for them when they told me to go get something. Um, and, and, that was, and that served me well as a writer. Um, but it doesn't serve me well as a main character. Um, I'm, not, I'm not the sort of decisive person to get out there and, and do things and mix it up with the world. Now, so one caveat, if you are that type of person, if you've, I don't know, if you spent time in the CIA or something and you're, you've, you've done some really cool things, then do use yourself. But the next idea I'm going to say is, do use yourself as a main character, sort of. Treat yourself as if you're a piano keyboard, and instead of writing from the center chords of who you are, write from the extreme ends of your personality. I, I was watching inside this inside the actor studios with James Lipton and there was a, uh, an actress who said that the early part of her career, all she did, if she imagined herself as a piano keyboard, she just played from the center keys. Her early roles were all ver versions of herself. The ingenue, the, the young, attractive, but naive, unworldly girl going out into the world. And she did that role again and again and again, and she did it well because that was what she was living. But then she became an actress, and she became, you know, she considered herself a real actress, and she became better. And she had to start playing people who were quite unlike herself. How did she do that? She started going to the extreme ends, the, the the deep dark tones and the high tinkly tones. And what she meant by that is we all have an enormous range as a personality. When we're out in public, when we come to a thing like this, we play from the center chords. But when we think about the extreme ends, sometimes we're very good, tidy, prim little, well-behaved soldiers, and other times we're an absolute freaking mess. And, uh, and we can inhabit characters vastly unlike ourselves by doing that. And I'm not going to tell you the, about the extreme ends of my personality. You don't need to tell me about the extreme ends of yours. But I will admit to this much. When I was a kid, I had this weird thing where I was a moralist. I, was, um, I would lecture my, my I had you know, guy friends when we were 11 and 12 about sort of how to be nice to other people and uh, to be, you know, not to treat girls bad and stuff. It wasn't because I was, a, I was a wise, good person. I was just a pain in the ass. I was just a killjoy for some reason. I don't know where I picked it up from. I'm not like that at all now. Um, any, you know, anything's cool with me at this point. But back then, I was like a little self-righteous, uh, had that self-righteous thing. It's all gone for me now, but I tap back into that. It's an extreme end of my personality, and I'm drawn uh, to writing characters that are sort of like that sometimes. I can do that really well. I can still tap back into that at times. So that's an example of one of my sort of extreme ends. I'm going to suggest that you have those as well, and that you can pull off characters that are vastly different from who you appear to be by going toward those extremes. A little bit of advice. Number eight, steal the nuances of characters, expressions, gestures from people you meet. Otherwise, leave your family and friends alone. This is a tricky thing. Some writers write very close to their own lives, but when they do, their family and people get really upset. Um, 
I, luckily for me, it's really hard for you hard, it's, it would be hard for you to find John Dalton in my books. I write from vastly different points of view. Um, my most recent novel, Heaven Lake, out a few years ago, uh, point of view character is the African-American camp nurse at a summer camp. Um, another one is a 78-year-old, self-righteous, judgmental uh, owner of the camp. So uh, there's not no... Uh, there's no direct correlation, but I'm still, I'm still writing about myself in ways, but I'm disguising it so much that nobody gets mad at me and nobody gets upset. That said, I do steal the gestures. When I'm hanging out with my family, I have a big family. Um, I have lots of nieces and nephews. This is just a small example, but one of my nieces and nephews, whenever she gets excited, she gets excited in a specific way. She goes, she goes like this, she goes, <gasps> Like, uh, her, her hand flutters in front of her mouth like that. That's a gesture I thought, that's really weird. That's unusual. I'll use that somehow. So that kind of stuff, I think, is fair game. Um, but if you want your family and friends and wives and children to like you, stay away from the other stuff. Number nine, realize that every time when you write a novel and you bring another person in the scene, things get exponentially harder. Every time I have to introduce a new character into the novel, it's like, it's such a daunting thing, because I realize I have to make them real, I have to give them an inner life, all of these things, it's so hard. But there is one shortcut. There's one way to bring characters into a story or novel, and they're already, they're already fully formed and have presence. And that is, let me give you these examples. Imagine a novel in which, set in small town Midwest, um, it's about a group of friends who grew up together, but one of them went off to Iraq and fought in the Battle of Fallujah and underwent some horrible things, and now he's back in town, and there's been sightings of him at the tattoo parlor, at the Quickie Mart, all of these places, but he's not yet appeared in the novel. People are talking about him in chapters one, two, and three, but he hasn't yet made an appearance. Therefore, when he does appear, he's already charged. He's what I call a charged character. Imagine also a, a sick child who's been seriously sick in the hospital, um, some, you know, a, a very serious life-threatening illness, and then he's allowed to come home for 10 days as a special treat. When that child enters the scene, he's charged. If he's four or five years old, he's a charged child, in a way, a charged character. Number 10. When describing main or minor characters, the trick is to find a way to illuminate the psychological rather than just the physical. I taught a novel recently called Americana. It's um, by Chimanda Ngozi Adichie. She's a Nigerian writer. She's really good, really old-fashioned in a way. She, uh, she reminds me of some of the Victorian writers. What she's especially good at is her character. She populates her novels with so many characters, minor characters. But yet she has a great way of bringing minor characters into focus. In this section, the main character, Ifeme Lu, um, gets a job as a nanny in, um, in Philadelphia. And she's taking care of two very privileged white kids. She winds up liking them, but this is her first impression. Um, and these, these kids don't at all play a major role in the novel. But for minor characters, look how well she does it getting into the psychological of who they are. Taylor was easy, a childish child, a playful one who was so naive that Ifeme Lu guiltily thought him stupid. 
But Morgan, only three years older, already wore the mourning demeanor of a teenager. She read many grades above her level, was steeped in enrichment classes, and watched adults with a hooded gaze, as though privy to the darkness that lurked in their lives. So the novelist offers us that and then just moves on. But that's really good. That's a really good sort of in-focus description of a minor character. As writers, that's what we try to do. We try to like not just have um, a general person in the novel, but to try and find a way to describe them psychologically. All right, I have gotten through all ten with about ten minutes left for questions. So um, if there's, if you're curious, yes, in the back in the green. Sure. Yes. Mm -hmm. It can. That's a good. So she, the the writer, the questioner brought up Lolita. I'm also. I love Lolita, and the Lolita is such a tricky novel to talk about because we all know that uh, Humbert Humbert is you know he's a pervert, he's a pedophile, and uh, the the um, the easy way to explain the reason we like him is because he's so funny and witty on the page, and that's true. But I also wind up the the thing that that novel does is you wind up sort of rooting for him and liking him even though he's doing deplorable things. Um, and then she brought up a documentary called Grey Gardens about uh, two women, a mother and daughter, on Long Island, and um, they're housebound. They're like, ag is it agrophobes? Is that no? What do you call it when you do? Yeah. And uh, and yeah. So the and um, but the way that that winds up, I mean, that works as a documentary. But yes, that's exactly right. If you were writing those kind of characters, um, eccentric. Shut, you know, shut-in kind of characters. You would have to find a way out of out of the constriction of that, and the fantasy life would be a great way to do it. Background incident, be, maybe before they became the way they were, those kind of things. Um, yeah, Ed. I think that there's a movement in the culture toward somewhat abject cynicism. You take a narrative like House of Cards, mm -hmm. where the main character is just deal. Yes. <laughs> I agree, and I think my way of, of understanding all of this is that, you know, the television is so fabulously good right now, so fabulously good that there's more good television that we even have big time to watch, um, and my theory is what it's become is it's, a lot of it seems very literary to me. It's as if in the past 20 years, um, people, all of the great things about literary novels are now, they found a way to do those in television. And part of that is uh, to center um, a TV series around a person who's completely unredeemable and make that person fascinating and have real presence. Kevin Spacey's so great. Every time he comes in, you'd lean forward towards your TV. And so um, because we've been trained by The Sopranos and some earlier stuff, the culture is, is ready for those things now. Uh, yeah, over here in the sweater. Yeah, do you, do you rely on 
You're, and so you're saying it's like when you have a really good fix on the main character that that helps create the minor characters that orbit around them? Kind of what comes first, the illusion of the character? I see. So she's saying, like, um, you know, do you, when when you're writing a novel, um, you know, how do characters come forth? How, sort of, how do you create them? Are they sort of supplied on demand? And that is the really tricky part, and that's part of the unteachable part, which is you're drawing on some mysterious stuff here. Um, you're drawing on. Uh, my characters come out of what I would call longing. Um, I'm not, I'm, it's not like I'm writing it, I, I, I'm not so rational that when I'm writing a novel I go, well, now I clearly need an authoritative character who has the following traits, A, B, and C, D, and then I shape the character around that. It's never anything logical like that. What happens is I sort of fall in love with uh, people who don't exist. Um, you know what I mean? Like, uh, maybe I glimpse versions of them and I become really, really interested in who they are. And uh, I, just, I just write about them and write and write and generate and work and work and gradually they come into focus. The current novel I'm working on, I, I, and I, anyway, the main character has a ridiculous name. She's a girl at a boarding school. Her name is Lolly Bromelsick. And she's a big girl. She's sturdy and athletic. And uh, I don't know why I became interested in her, but I have been doing nothing but sort of thinking about her and writing about her for a couple of years now. And I'm beginning to understand her in ways that I think can work for a novel. But I didn't, I didn't arrive at her by going, hey, John, you know, this novel should feature such and such a character. It comes out of, I think, longing, um, in a way. <laughs> yes? You brought up an interesting part. Do you spend time uh, writing a profile, you know, like you said, for a couple of years, or yeah. build a character before you actually use that character? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's, uh, the, the questioner asks, do you write a profile of them? Like, what is their favorite dessert, blah, blah, blah. I never find any of that helpful. What I do is I write about them thinking that the passages I'm writing about them are deeply insightful and elegant and will stay in the novel and will wow people in the future, only to realize that they're not. And so uh, I keep cutting and cutting and cutting. So if uh, on my file I have chapter one, which is the good stuff that stays in it. Then I have cut stuff. I have another file called cut stuff from chapter one, which contains... 50 pages about Lally Bromelsick, some of it okay, some of it decent, none of it terrible, but just not exceptional yet. And so in those cut things, what I'm really doing is figuring out who she is in ways that never needs to be included in the novel. Yes? Uh, to go back to your point about basing a character on yourself, my current novel in progress has as its protagonist uh, a guy who's very much like me as a child or a teenager, and on the one hand, I'm saying to myself, this guy is really unpleasant, <laughs> and that's fine. Yeah. But you got to make the reader sympathize with it to some degree. Yeah. So I'm trying to do that. At the same time, when I look at this character on the page, I say to myself, you don't begin to describe how awful you were. <laughs> Come on now, you can do better than that. Yeah. <laughs> how do you reconcile? What I found is that good readers, the, the people who we want to read our books, have 
a larger capacity to accept deeply flawed characters than we give them credit for. Um, and that we tend to hold back in a self-protective way. That's one of the. That's another disadvantage of writing about yourself. You know, you don't want to. You don't want to reveal too much of the bad stuff. But I think that, in general, character. You know, readers will allow you a fair amount of leeway in in going into some stark, unpleasant, uh, unsettling stuff. So anyway, I guess my general advice to you is let it rip and. Uh, and see what happens, because I, I think sometimes when you let it rip, that's where the interesting stuff comes from. Okay, uh, th thank you for, uh, for attending, and if you have uh, other questions, anything you want to follow up on, I'd be happy to hang around and chat with you afterwards. <laughs>